This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The World Cup in Qatar this year was preceded by years and years of controversy. Charges of shameless corruption and mistreatment of migrant workers. But then the games finally began. Staff writer Sam Knight reported for us on the tournament. The first 10 days of the World Cup in Qatar was soccer as it is, rather than as you want it to be. It was venal, closed, and transactional. I saw some terrific goals. I drank Coke and paid with my Visa card. I lined up for the Adidas store. Everything was brand new, air-conditioned, and covered in an almost invisible layer of pale desert dust. Sam just got back from Qatar, and he shared some of his impressions from on the ground and in the stands. This was my first World Cup. Yeah grown up with the tournament, watching it on TV, but this was, this was the first time I'd ever traveled to see it in person. There was something about this particular edition in, in Qatar which was just irresistible to, to try and explore. You know, the whole world was in Qatar because you did feel like you had kind of, you had shifted somewhere else on the world's axis and the center of this tournament was, was the Middle East and the Arab-speaking world. And you'd go to the, you know, the souk in Doha. There'd be the call to prayer as you kind of walked to a game or as you, as you came out. It rang to Moroccan fans and Tunisian fans and Saudi fans and Qatari fans. Literally a billion or more people in, in a different way and in a way that made it feel like their own. This was a very tame and well-behaved and moderate sporting event. I went to Argentina, Saudi Arabia, which was one of the kind of most exciting early matches in the tournament, and there were thousands of Argentinian fans. And there were tens of thousands of Saudi fans. If you're a reporter at one of these things, you have, you have your own desk. 
So you sit at your desk and then like during the game, you like write down at your little table like what's happening. But then at halftime, I'd go out and like mingle in the stadium concourse and wander up to people and have conversations with them. So one of the people that I spent a bit of time with was a, uh, a young Qatari guy called Ali. It was fascinating chatting to, to Ali about his parents' feelings before the family went to the opening game, you know, this fear that maybe some, some soccer fans would, would come to the World Cup and they just wouldn't leave afterwards. The Qataris, to varying degrees, were terrified of the influx. Families installed security cameras and checked their window locks. In the days before the World Cup, social media filled with prayers and stoic messages for the test ahead. And so the idea of, you know, a million soccer fans descending from all corners of the world was kind of terrifying to, to people who kind of like things to be extremely orderly and organized. I'm a football fan, you know, I'm English, I grew up in London, um, in English stadiums, it's an immediate kind of sense, memory, overload of cigarette smoke and fried food and alcohol and unbearable language and a kind of, you know, a tinge of, a tinge of danger. That was different in Qatar. It was safer, it was, it was more polite, it was, you know, it was very welcoming in lots of ways. I also had a really good chat on Zoom one day with a, a young country woman called Asma. And she was a mad soccer fan, she was a big Real Madrid fan. She, she was saying, I want to, you know, I want to get out into Doha and like capture the atmosphere, but you know what, there's so many games on TV, I'm just tied to my, to my TV at the moment. She was just absolutely absorbed in it. All but condemned Germany to a second straight group stage exit. And it comes to Maratha! Spain get the breakthrough! And she'd followed the reporting in the build-up to the tournament, you know, in great detail and, and felt kind of honestly confused by how Qatar didn't seem to be doing, didn't seem to be able to do anything, anything right. The fact that Dubai, a popular destination for European soccer players and their clubs, didn't seem to attract the same kind of ethical scrutiny drove her crazy. They go to Dubai and they love Dubai, Asma said. They don't care about migrant workers there. They love to take pictures of Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, but they don't care about the people who build Burj Khalifa. It just gets, like, very confusing from an Arab perspective. Very, very, very confusing. I think for Qatari people... You know, they literally watched this evolving storyline of how awful they were. And it started with them being, you know, the corrupt people who paid for the World Cup. And then it moved on to the way that migrant workers were treated. And, and, they, and they just felt like, to use a soccer expression, like the goalposts were shifting every time. It is the frankness of the Qatari system, more than its iniquity, that is unusual. This is a common and almost universal kind of setup. That's what Natasha Iskander, a migration scholar at New York University, told me. She said, and this is one of the reasons that we're all implicated in the system. It's not, you know, the Qataris behaving badly. It is us, as a global community, 
really having to confront what it looks like when you rely utterly on a system that deprives people of rights beyond their economic function. I think having been to this World Cup will make me experience the sport a bit differently now. Just to have been shifted on my axis a bit. It's to see a sport that you've kind of known and followed through your whole life from a particular angle, really knowing and seeing these games play out in a very different place uh, is something really meaningful. And it kind of, it's happened now, so it can happen again. Sam Knight's full story at Cutter's World Cup, where politics and pleasure collide, is at newyorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour with more to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Now, for Washington insiders and people in the media especially, Politico publishes some of the scoopiest and wonkiest reporting inside the Beltway. It's not what you'd call a mass market publication, but it's a highly influential one. And it's had some very big moments. It was Politico, after all, that obtained Samuel Alito's draft opinion from the Supreme Court about the decision that ended Roe v. Wade. Last year, the German news publisher Axel Springer bought Politico for a pretty startling sum, a billion dollars. Springer is based in Berlin and owns the German tabloid Bild, among other properties. And it's led by CEO Matthias Dupfner. Dupfner is 
famously contrarian, and he likes to chide American media for pandering, he says, to increasingly partisan audiences, even as he himself seems to relish taking provocative stances on some very significant issues. I talked with Matthias Duffner recently. So a very basic question to begin. The media business, as you know better than anybody, is a very tough business these days. Why did you spend a billion dollars to buy Politico? So for two main reasons. In general, I believe that journalism has a very bright future if we get some things right. And um, to complain about uh, digitization as a threat to journalism, I think is just wrong. I think digital journalism is going to be better than analog journalism ever was because there are so many more opportunities to have access to information, to the intelligence of the users, to have no deadlines, to have unlimited space, to have a lot of new aesthetic opportunities. Uh, and also the business model is potentially better. So there are a lot of reasons for optimism. The most important thing is do we really focus on relevance and on integrity and trustworthiness of journalism? Or do we trap into that um, uh, into, do we uh, fall into that trap to polarize and uh, just, in a way, um, amplify prejudice of our readers, which I think is not a sustainable model in the long run. And having said that, I have already, in a way, indicated the second reason. It is all uh, about the quality of the content, about the kind of unpredictability and open-mindedness and nonpartisan approach of journalism. We have this kind of contrarian bet. If everybody polarizes, the few who do differently may uh, have the better future. And I think Politico as a brand stands for that. You and I, we, and everybody else in our business has been to a thousand conferences and conversations with, with where we discuss partisanship and nonpartisanship and objectivity and all the, all those Buzzwords. Let's be specific. There is no objectivity. Objectivity is already a lie because journalism is made by human beings and human beings have preferences. And if you run a story and if you uh, position it uh, prominently or big or small, that's already a judgment. So I think it is not about objectivity or neutrality. It is about plurality. It is about, uh, in a way, fairness. And it is about curiosity on facts. But let's let's be specific. Let's be specific about the landscape in the United States, which you are now entering in a big way. And let, is the New York Times, which is probably the most well-regarded newspaper in the country, along with, say, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, are these partisan or nonpartisan news outlets? In your view, they are um, nonpartisan news outlets because uh, the diversity and quality of journalism that they deliver. Um, cannot be positioned as a kind of uh, political agenda. Um, there are developments where I take a more critical view, and that is if uh, the head of the editorial pages has to resign because he published that guest commentary um, of a Republican senator um, while he was not criticized of publishing uh, guest commentaries by uh, Putin or uh, terrorists. So uh, that, I think, is problematic. And the debate about uh, freedom of expression is needed. But uh, to portray brands like that uh, as kind of partisan, I think, is, is, uh, is too superficial. Now, Axel Springer, which owns Politico and much else, Axel Springer employees in Germany 
have to sign a pledge committing to, quote, principles that include a disavowal of racism, sexism, and political or religious extremism. And they've also got to support a united Europe, Israeli statehood, and a free market economy. Those are points of view. Why would Axel Springer want its reporters or editors anywhere to sign a pledge saying that they are not Brexiteers as opposed to people who support a united Europe or somebody who's arguing about the politics of Israel? I think it is uh, a very uh, important element of transparency and honesty of a media company. We had that discussion briefly. There is no neutral journalism. And every journalism and every publisher who pretends to be neutral is already lying. That's why we thought, and if I say we, it is the founder of the company decades ago who started with four principles. Then I edited a fifth principle, which is the, uh, solidarity within the free values of the Transatlantic Alliance. Um, and we have modernized these five uh, principles uh, a couple of times. It is almost like a constitution of the company. Those are our fundamental social values. And uh, that has nothing to do with party politics, with people politics, or with day-to-day -day politics. So there is uh, almost endless room within these values uh, to, on a daily basis, on a very individual basis, take positions, which our journalists do, but they do it based on that plurality of opinions. And I think it is very important to have, on the one hand, that transparency of these five constitutional values of Springer. Everybody knows what we stand for. And I take pride that in our company, not uh, everybody writes what I think is right. And I encourage this kind of dialogue and debate. So what's confusing to me here on the pledge, for example, let's say I'm a Politico reporter. And I have doubts about a united Europe. Let's say I was born in Britain, and I'm, I think, in, in fact, the united Europe didn't work for Britain, and I'm pro-Brexit, but I'm also uh, committed to, I disavow racism, sexism, and all the rest. So if, 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 if I have one part of the pledge that I don't feel comfortable with, I can't be a reporter at Politico? Well, for example, if you would deny the principle of the free market economy and would advocate socialism as the right model for our society, then I think there are better places to work so for. Like or AOC, if you say anti-Semitism like, like, should be spread on social media, that's the wrong company. Th those are different things. But, but those, Brexit, those let's go things. concretely into the details. I personally have given an interview to the Financial Times a day after Brexit and said I'm more worried about continental Europe and the EU than I'm worried about England. I think they were just running away from too much uh, bureaucracy and a uh, failed uh, uh, policy. So that criticism is uh, happening every day. And one, people, one person is pro-Brexit, the other one against it. That, I think, does not in general mean that you are against the idea of a united Europe. Perhaps the EU institutions failed, and that's why that, that event was healthy. Now, the Washington Post reported weeks before the U.S. presidential election that you sent a surprising message to your closest executives. You wrote, do we all want to get together for an hour in the morning of November 3rd and pray that Donald Trump will again become president of the United States of America? Can you clarify what you were you kidding around? Were you dead serious? Yeah, everybody who who met me once or spoke to me for a couple of minutes know that that was a joke. Uh, it was under the impression of that breaking news that the administration uh, of Trump is suing Google because of abuse of market domination, and that is a topic that I was very involved with. And that was this kind of moment where basically every publisher around the world world was uh, happy about that decision. And in that context, I made that jokes to three. 
um, executive colleagues in the chat. Um, everybody who wants to portray me as a Trumpist uh, should read the, the text that I wrote for many years. In 2017, I wrote an article to, where I described his language as the language of the mafia. So I, th I think I'm not in that thing in that, that camp. But if you don't mind, you also went on to argue that Trump has made the right moves on five of what you deem as the six most important issues of the last half century. Quote, defending the free, uh, defending the free democracies against Russia and China pushing NATO allies up uh, to up their contributions, tax reform, and Middle East peace efforts, as well as challenging tech monopolies. So I'm just asking to, to be clear, because the press coverage of no, you uh, uh, does, as you say, at times make you out to be, uh, if not a Trumpist, then certainly Trump-adjacent. I try to explain. When he... Uh, uh, took office, uh, there was a very strong media bias in Europe and in America. And uh, I think that has strengthened Trump even because he was almost, he became a hero anti-establishment media. And that led also to some misunderstandings because sometimes the wrong people uh, can promote the right things. And in the case of Trump, very clearly, uh, the example of China, intuitively and conceptually, that was absolutely the right direction of politics, which is, by the way, continued to a surprising degree by the Biden administration. And I think it is really uh, important to see the topic and not the person. Um, another example is NATO, uh, the push uh, for adequate NATO funding. And it turned out to be so right uh, after the experience of the Ukrainian war. So um, I think we have to distinguish general directions of policy and uh, person. And then that leads us to the storm of, on the Capitol and uh, the denial of election results happened. And I think that is a moment where political discussions stop. There was a coup from the top. It was undermining democracy. It is perhaps the, 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 the most severe threat to democracy in the recent U.S. history. And I think uh, there, there should be zero tolerance. And I think party political discussions stop here. Last year, you ordered the Israeli flag to be flown in solidarity at company headquarters during uh, unrest in, in, in Gaza. And I don't know what you were reacting to, the anti-Semitic outbursts at demonstrations, or you were taking a side vis-a-vis -vis the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Absolutely not the latter, um, but the first. And uh, it was a moment when uh, on Berlin streets and all over Germany, mm -hmm. a lot of anti-Semitic anti demonstrations happened. And in that moment, uh, we have four flags in front of our uh, company and very often the LGBT flag or we have now at the moment the Ukrainian flag. And uh, in that moment when there were these anti-Semitic uh, demonstrations, we said for one week we uh, flag the Israeli flag. Uh, as a gesture of opposition against this form of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Israelism. Some people were criticizing that and said, well, I don't want to work for a company that is raising the Israeli flag. And then I said spontaneously, and I would repeat that uh, whenever I'm asked again, uh, if somebody really has an issue in such a situation, then perhaps there's a better place for you to work for. Because if, if, if there is no sensitivity that particularly in Germany, in Berlin, where the Holocaust was planned and executed and where six million Jews were killed. The German guilt is still present. If there is not a kind of healthy reaction against it, and if you then set that gesture and people have an issue with that, then really perhaps there are better companies to work for. But I think, again, here also it's transparency, and that does not mean that we advocate a one-state solution or anything, and, there, and we would also 
demonstrate for Palestinian rights of existence. We are for all rights of existence of of, uh, of legitimate uh, institutions and nations. So Axel Springer supports the rise of a Palestinian statehood. I personally prefer a two-state solution, but my personal preference preferences don't matter. I've always distinguished that very clearly. I speak up. I'm a journalist. I worked for 20 years as a journalist. I'm occasionally writing editorials, but that has zero impact on the very diverse editorial lines of our brands. No journalist ever ever cares what what I think. <laughs> I wonder how you see various media barons in our country. How do you see Rupert Murdoch? Is he a role model or is he a cautionary tale as far as his contributions to political discourse? I know him and I think what he has done over the decades is a legendary achievement. Uh, nevertheless, I would say I'm pretty much the anti-Murdoch in my in my kind of self-definition. I think this whole idea Of, of moguls and media barons is so outdated. I mean, uh, maybe there was a time for that, but but I think these times are over. So uh, I'm a I'm a journalist uh, who is uh, running a media company in the role of a CEO and and and, and shareholder. Um, I'm not a mogul. I don't want to become one. And um, I, I I think for me the most important thing is to really empower journalists in their independence and in their intrinsic anti-authoritarian instincts. You have to decide whether you either employ journalists who obey or if you employ journalists who excel. And if they obey, they cannot excel. And so you have to create a culture that they don't care what you what you think politically or ideologically. And uh, also in that sense, uh, I think a more pragmatic approach and a more forward-looking approach, a more progressive approach uh, is our mindset. Is Fox News a positive contribution to the discourse in American democracy? I would put it this way. If Fox News is part of a diverse uh, field of competition and perhaps also diverse worldviews, then it may be a contribution. I don't want to judge, but our idea is different. W what's wrong with yeah. judging it? Mm, it can be easily perceived as... Uh, One competitor tells others what they should do or what they do well or not so well. I think, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like, I, I'm not a friend of that, honestly. Uh, let's talk about our own um, ideas and strategies and that perhaps then indirectly also gives answers to how we see what the competitors are doing. On a more general basis, I truly think that this polarization of media landscape, and that is not only a U.S. phenomenon, the same happens in Europe, um, I think it's really unhealthy, not only unhealthy for the society, um, but also unhealthy for, for media brands. And of course, social media have contributed to that. The business model is based on that. The, the highest click rates are generated by the most polarizing and extreme headlines and uh, words. And uh, I think that is a tremendous opportunity for, for real media brands to do differently. That's the opportunity for journalism, actually. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. With pleasure. Matthias Dupfner is the CEO of Axel Springer. The company acquired Politico for a billion dollars last year. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. 
with additional music by Alexis Quadrado. This episode was produced by Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kuchman, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.